Hello and welcome to the Cinephile New Wave. I am Nick, along with... I'm Duran. And I'm Tony. And welcome to our... Uh, I'm not keeping track. I don't know why I tried to say the episode number. Um, but uh, this week's episode, we'll be uh, talking about uh, John Ford's The Searchers. Um, but before that, uh, let's, uh, let's talk to our guest, Tony. How are you? How have you been? I'm doing well. It's great to be back on Cinephile New Wave. I'm, I'm glad to have you. We're glad to have you. It's not just I'm one of me. It's uh, Duran's <laughs> here as well. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so yeah, um, there is a small bit of news we will cover before, uh, getting into the searchers. Um, that being the, uh, the fact that, uh, Warner Brothers has decided to delay Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, this is important not for delaying Wonder Woman, but because it tells us something about the box office right now. Um, if you don't know, Tenant just kind of released everywhere in America that it could, and, um... I guess they looked at the results and said, you know, uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's push what we have back because this is not looking good. Uh, anybody want to comment on that? Or uh... this gives me, you know, some um, some hope, both for cinema as an art form, and also the United States of America. For <laughs> cinema as an art form, I'm very glad people aren't going to see this movie because it sucks. But for the United States of America, it shows that hopefully this means people aren't so stupid to go to a movie theater and kill themselves yeah. watching this movie. It's true. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> if, uh, if that's all we kind of want to talk about this week. Well, uh, well, okay, we, can, we can expand a bit on that. I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I am curious to see how long it will take before the box office recovers. I mean, if, if it ever really does because i think that we we talked about we started this podcast like during coronavirus so we talked about like um the virus's impact on um the box office a lot yeah um and i think one of the main things people are thinking about right now especially people in the movie industry is if um theaters will ever recover if the box office will like ever recover at all yeah because despite like um you know movies making more money than they've ever done before um, theaters have kind of been dying in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's extremely difficult for them to make money, which is why, you know, concessions are so expensive. Um, movie tickets are very expensive. And well, even despite the fact that movie tickets are very expensive, they make barely any money, if at all, on the ticket itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Tony, do you want to uh, touch on the subject? The issue that a lot of directors have with people watching movies in their homes i feel like is that oftentimes the, the size of the screen won't be great the quality won't be great in terms of picture or sound or they'll be afraid of people watching their film on their phone and now i think that people are like getting larger tvs nicer tvs for a lot cheaper than they have in the past and i'm, I'm not sure if the the importance of going to this collective location um, will remain the American populace, though I, I don't think that the art of cinema will die anytime soon. I definitely agree. I mean, like I think, despite where people see films, even if it's on their phone, which is disgusting, but even if they do that, I don't think the art will ever really die because of that. However, um, I do feel that like cinema is both a collective medium in its creation and also in its um, consumption. 
So like um, for me, the most exciting part of a movie isn't actually sitting down and watching the movie. It's, you know, doing this, discussing the movie after with friends after we've watched it. Hell yeah. And I think that like the, the theater really like um, uh, makes that experience possible. If you're hearing clanging dishes, that is our uh, roommate. <laughs> don't don't mind that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it yeah. We kind of talked about this, you know, from the beginning that like um, theaters theaters probably won't die, but they're definitely not going to be as big as they once were. And I think that is the kind of big takeaway from um, you know what's happening yeah. right now. They might become like a more like exclusive experience, yeah. um, which you know, it kind of sucks. But at the same time, it might be a good thing. It just depends on the context, I think. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I think like the the thing that will I'll lose the most are like um, mid budget to low budget films getting like wide distribution. I don't think that like that'll really ever happen. Yeah, I. You know what? You know what I think will happen with those, if anything, is that they'll they'll go to select art houses which i i do yeah. think the art house will survive this but again yeah. I like, mean, like, even I, like bigger theaters always... they're gonna be probably a smaller operation yeah i mean like there's always like cult theaters and like you know small indie theaters everywhere but like um they might those i'm sure like those will survive but the the distribution might not be there for them anymore yeah. So like um like certain like studios that specialize in like limited release or like you know uh limited release of like smaller scale films have like distribution platforms that they're able to like um distribute their films to certain theaters that are that are smaller. But they those 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 um those smaller studios might just go straight to streaming instead of you know going to these smaller theaters. So Definitely. um these like indie theaters might need to resort to just playing like old movies or like classic films. Yeah. Which they might not like ever get any like new films. True. Um, which I don't know. Yeah. That there's a give and take there. I love old movies, but like, I, I would like to see, you know, new. Yeah. I mean like, I want to see like the new, I don't know, be gone film yeah. in a theater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot of give and take with this whole situation, and you kind of just have mm -hmm. to take it in stride, because we can't do shit about it. Nope. Yep. Um, uh, shall we move on to the film? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can move on now. <laughs> cool. So, uh, for this week, we watched John Ford's classic American Western, The Searchers, 1956. Um, if you guys haven't seen The Searchers, which you should, um, it's kind of it's weird if you haven't. Because, um, you know, every true cinephile has watched The Searchers. And Nick and I definitely <laughs> didn't just watch it yesterday for the first time. Yeah. Um, so the plot is um, basically um, John Wayne plays uh, this character named Ethan Edwards, which is like the whitest name I could possibly think of. E -E. And um, he has a brother and his family is like killed basically by a bunch of Native Americans. And um, one of their friend, one of the friends of the family named Martin, who's um, like part uh, Native American, uh, goes with John Wayne to try to find um, the two girls that were taken by the Native Americans. So that's the general plot. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and since Tony's the guest, would you like to start off? What did you think of The Searchers? Sure. I thought it, it was a really interesting film because it almost seemed like a like an archetypal vision of like a little kid playing cowboys and Indians in their backyard and kind of displayed a, a maybe the first that I'm aware of American epic that shows like America's mythology and shows this like voyage manifest destiny into the West, obviously depicted with a very um, technicolor aesthetic I liked a lot of the cinematography, which I felt like probably inspired Lawrence of Arabia and its desert shots with many people moving within. And that really reminded me of the painter Remington. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Uh, no. I think I've okay, at least well, heard of him. He, he just painted a bunch of cowboy scenes and... Uh, I, I was wondering if uh, Ford had studied up on his composition from Remington. Overall, I thought that it was like it was very good, but there are obviously a few critiques that I'm sure you guys will agree with on uh, the the lens that the film was presented in. You know, uh, as the uh, the white settlers are good guys and the natives are the enemy. Though we can talk about that later. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then also another thing that I thought was just like kind of comical that I wanted to bring up right out of the uh, right out of the start is that in the beginning, the way that everything starts is the the family is in their house and then they're like, oh no, the natives are coming to attack us. Go hide, little girl. And then they like send her out of the house into the <laughs> graveyard, which is just obviously not a safe place. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think it's funny that you bring up um, Lawrence of Arabia because I'm actually on the Wikipedia article right now and like it explicitly says that David Lean watched the film The, the Searchers repeatedly while preparing for Lawrence of Arabia. Really? Um, <laughs> that's yeah. really cool. And specifically like the landscape shots. So that's a, that's a pretty cool uh, thing you caught there. Um, yeah, so I, um, I like how you brought up this idea of like um, American kind of like mythology, um, mm -hmm. like the Western myth, because... Um, for for you know, uh, at least two century, uh, two decades in the sound era, and another like decade or uh, decade and a half in the silent era, um, the western has been um, you know the greatest kind of American genre, um, and it, it does represent all of like the classic American myths about you know the um, uh, what's what's the main one um well oh yeah manifest destiny like you said um and yeah this idea of you know the whites being um those deserving of this land and like the native americans you know don't but what's interesting about the searchers specifically is that it really muddles these it, it plays around with these myths mm -hmm. so in a typical like golden age western there would really be no question that the whites are the good, the Native Americans are the bad, and like we have to kill them and like take the land and blah blah blah, like that. And like John Ford himself has made you know a lot of films like that. Um, of course, you have to like understand the historical context. But um, the, the interesting thing about the Searchers is that 
it's neither a classic Hollywood Western because it questions a lot of these things. And we'll get into the nitty gritty of that later, but it's neither, it's also not a post-Western because it doesn't, it doesn't break any of these ideas. It just, it, it, it makes them like more awkward. Uh, I told, I told Nick earlier that the cracks in like these myths start to become apparent in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, is there anything you want to, uh, like get into like any aspect first, uh, no, I'm talking generally about it. But Just you can talking generally. Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, general thoughts are that um, it it's a very good film. I feel like you need to have seen like a good chunk of like uh, westerns to like really kind of you know get this and um, really get what it's uh, getting at because I've I haven't seen a lot of westerns if I'm to be honest and. Um, part of those deconstructions just kind of seemed silly to me as a result because of how they were handled. And I didn't, I, you know, I wasn't really realizing that they were supposed to be deconstructions. I just thought they were awkward beats in the plot. Um, but, um, what are some examples of that? Um, well, one of the most obvious is, uh, kind of near the end and a bit of a spoiler. Um, so I, uh, I think, I'll save that for when it's we okay. do. It's okay. It's you can spoil the searches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a movie from <laughs> 1956. All right, we'll yeah. just get into it. Um, but if you uh, don't want to hear this, uh, leave now or forever hold your peace. Um, anyway, uh, the example I was going to say is the um, the fight between um, uh, the Martin and Charlie. Martin and Charlie. Yeah, uh, the fight between Martin and Charlie, where like they're. There are bits where, like, he he says, like, whose whose violin is this? And like, <laughs> they stop the fight, and then they they throw the log down, and one of them like spits to the other side. <laughs> I thought it was a spitting contest at first. <laughs> Who could spit the farthest? <laughs> um, but like a lot of the a lot of like, I I think a lot of that deconstruction to me just seemed very um, very awkward to to someone who's who's not very familiar with uh, the Western genre, which may be off off putting to some people, but um yeah. Yeah, so let's um let's mention some of these things that you call deconstructions. So um I don't know if I would I'm not sure if I'd use the word deconstruction, but yeah I think that, that, that's okay. So however you want to put it. Yeah. Um th these like awkward moments in the narrative that that make that that put into question um the Western myths, but I mean, we can't use that phrase every single time, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so near the beginning, when they see the um, the Native American guy buried like under a rock, John Wayne takes out a gun and he shoots them. He shoots the guy who's already dead uh, mm -hmm. twice, once once in both eyes, and says, um, "In the uh, Comanche religion, um, they have to be buried like with their eyes intact, or else they'll be like roaming the uh, the earth like eternally or something." Yeah. Uh, which is like a pretty like sadistic thing to do. Yeah, it was almost yeah. it was almost like a Cormacian in a way, McCarthyan, Cormac McCarthy. Oh yeah, uh, author of one of my favorite authors of books like Blood Meridian, which are just absolutely uh, vicious, violent takes on the the Western genre. Yeah, um, and like there's there's a few moments later and where this happens, like. Um, 
when the Native Americans are retreating across the river, he keeps, uh, John Wayne's character keeps like shooting at them, even though like, you know, they're clearly retreating and not fighting him anymore. Um, and he's like, has to be restrained by like Martin and I think the Reverend. And then um, I think like near the, I guess the middle or the end where John Wayne just like keeps shooting the buffalo, uh, even though they only needed to like kill one to attract the Native mm -hmm. Americans. And I think he says like um, something about like starving them out, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I tended to think that Ethan was pretty unlikable. Actually. Yeah, Ethan mm -hmm. Ethan just through and through just kind of seems like a bad guy in the in the movie. But I, I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be like a a good cop bad cop sort of deal with um, Marty, his partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I at the same time, yeah. this is John Wayne. It's like yeah, that's, that's the thing. Like yeah. the fact that Ford is using Wayne as like kind of this, you know, terrible person. I think I think it says a lot about um, the Western the Western genre because um, I I struggle to say that Wayne is like uh, oh I guess Ethan so Wayne's character his character is completely supposed to be shown as evil by the end I I think that the um, Ford is using these like moments of awkwardness to make us question his character but not outright dismiss him as evil yeah. Okay. Cause um, there's there's a lot of like uh, moments where like, I, and especially like the ending was kind of very jarring to me. Uh, the the moment when he um, they finally rescue uh, Natalie Wood, uh, Debbie. Um, there's there's that moment where he he like you you think he's going to just kill her, mm -hmm. and uh, you know. And yeah, the reason so the reason we they think um we think that she's gonna kill her is because from I think like since like the middle of the film we kind of realized that um John Wayne's character wants to kill her as like he kind of views her as tainted since like um he believes like she's been like raped by the Native Americans or like assimilated into their culture. So yeah. anyway, I just wanted to put that in context. I'll talk about that after. Yeah. So anyway, continue. Um no, the I I was just, you know, just uh exemplifying the fact that like Ethan as a character is uh I feel almost complicated just because we we never get a great look inside his head we only kind of get these these you know definitive actions by him and we never you know have him open up because he's John Wayne and he's a big strong man who don't need no man uh yeah but <laughs> It's, it's almost like, despite the fact that he is this pretty, like, horrible person, he is still being um, mythologized by, I guess, Western films and this film, like, specifically. Yeah. Um, but I just, I, I found him to be an, an interesting character that I, I was never really quite sure what he was kind of doing or getting on to, but... Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was kind of confused at the end because it seemed as if the um, uh, Debbie, it seemed as if she was like not actually happy that she was being returned. Was it at, at the very end? At the very, very end. Like if you look at her face as she's like returning to her to her house, she hugs the people. But if you look at her face, mm. it's not a face of happiness. That's um, interesting, and that would that would make sense because I mean. Um... When when they first find Debbie, uh, she says like these are my people now. Don't mm -hmm. take me back. Go home, right? 
which is actually something that happened like throughout history like mm-hmm. people would get girls people i don't know they'd get kidnapped native americans and they'd like be like oh this is actually pretty good i'm i'm uh i'm into this this is better than the things are on the list i mean it makes sense because i mean she was captured at a young age um and like she kind of grew up uh basically like her whole like adolescent life with them so she probably has like a stronger connection with like the native american um people that the comanches mm-hmm. i guess than i guess uh her original family yeah. And um, if um, I, I wish I'd noticed uh, her face during during the final scene, because that actually would make, make a lot of sense, because I actually thought it was very awkward when she's found for the second time. And I guess, quote unquote, saved by by Martin uh, in the yeah. climax of the film to be very strange because she says, um, oh, yes, yes, Martin, I'll, I'll, I'll come home with you now, which is like super weird because like i don't know 20 minutes before in the movie which i guess is a couple years uh before in the film but she was saying no like go home i'm 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 totally like fine here so like uh, what is what is this like strange maybe maybe it's the threat of uh the the chief scar because she's she's more willing to leave after he's dead right Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, she goes out of her way to like escape the. Oh yeah, yeah, to, to like escape the the little I guess like settlement and to tell um, John Wayne's character and Martin to like go away. I feel like if she was really scared of Scar, like she wouldn't do that. Um, this is like before in the movie. Do you think it was her like fear of Ethan killing her? Possibly, perhaps. Yeah, that that, that is that's a good point. Yeah. Um, uh, I, it is also awkward because I mean Ethan at the very end just decides not to kill her and and it's like yo yeah. it's all good. <laughs> um, so the the thing you said about her not looking very happy at the end, um, I I'll I'll put this out there. I don't know if you know this is correct, but it may have just been an acting choice by uh, Natalie that like it, she had to be crying because you know it was the emotional homecoming and didn't know exactly you know how to look upset in that way i don't know uh, i'm just putting this out there just because that is such an interesting choice to have her not look happy at this i think uh, at this i homecoming. think i don't know i feel like if it's a very deliberate decision i think we have to take everything in, in a in a foreign movie as like a very deliberate decision yeah. you know yeah i mean you just you just look at um, how precise everything is in this film. Uh, Tony mentioned the cinematography before. Um, I, I think I, I, I mentioned to Nick how like amazing the color looks in this movie. Like the the yellows just are, are like so brought out. Um, All of it looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah. like um, I, I love like this, these like yellow orange look that the film mm-hmm. has. Yeah. I don't I don't know if it's like really meant to like represent anything. I just think it's it's really really interesting. Yeah uh i really uh there's that one shot where like everything's in black and white and it it threw me off at first but it's a very beautiful shot um yeah it's weird there's there's like this one shot um it's it's the the buffalo yeah yeah where like everything seems like it's black and white i don't know if it's like a problem with the um the transfer that we had because you know like sometimes this happens in digital transfers but it seemed like it was supposed to be in black and white just kind of weird I don't remember that. I don't, you don't no. remember that. Yeah. It's like it's like just it's like the it's a wide shot. It shows the back of um, Ethan and and Martin before they're about to hunt the buffalo. It's a very specific shot, so I don't know if you yeah. remember. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing about it is, like, it's very clearly black and white, 
or or at least you know like color corrected in some areas because the next shot you clearly see colors on them yeah yeah that was weird <laughs> yeah but it's um it's it's a great shot and good effect anyway mm -hmm. um but yeah the the use of color the use of like landscapes in this movie is just fantastic that's um, the that's the ford classic yeah mm -hmm. uh <laughs> although they do the Hollywood thing, which is like, let's just build sets, even though we're filming out in the middle of like, you know, Monument Valley, which is. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Kinda, but... it, I'd imagine like building a like a studio level cabin in the middle of Monument Valley is kind of like uh, a ridiculous thing, especially just filming on a soundstage. True. Part of me, part of me though, was like, you know, it's John Ford, and it's like what nineteen fifty six. He could probably have the clout to do this right now. Just build a fucking cabin in the middle of uh, Monument Valley, mm -hmm. and then and then actually burn it down. <laughs> oh, true. <laughs> uh, you know that might have been. Uh, I feel like that that sequence might have been real because, like, I don't know. It, it did seem like it was outside. I, they did a good job of doing that. If so, uh, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt it. I mean. Some of the things in this movie look too real to not be real. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's it's funny because like some things look very like part of like they actually built this, but a lot of like weird certain shots are just like, nope, this is in a soundstage. Mm -hmm. um, Which... I'm thinking of like a specific shot um, when the cavalry is like raiding the uh, the Native American camp, and like a bunch of like horsemen are coming like towards the camera. And there's like a Native American, uh, I don't remember, like man or woman, like holding a child, and he like just runs past the horses in time for them not to get trampled over. And I'm like, yeah, that wasn't a stunt or anything. They really did that. Yeah, <laughs> stuff like that just can't be a stunt. I mean, like, I, I wonder if like uh, the buffalo they killed in this movie, they actually killed for real. Probably at this point in time, that's <laughs> that's a probably. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? I, uh, the music was pretty good. I, I like the score and, uh, you know. I have a, I, uh, personally, I am not the best, the, 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 the biggest fan of classic Hollywood scores, uh, or especially like, um, like older Western scores. I find them to be very repetitive, but, um, I think the use of the score is excellent. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. That's really what I... <laughs> there is this amazing shot uh, near, I guess, the beginning of the film when Ethan reveals to... I forget which character it was. It was it was Ethan Martin and, like, a third guy. Um, Ethan reveals that um, one of the sisters, he found, like, the dead body in, like, the canyon before. Yeah. Um, and the third guy, like, gets really mad and starts to, like in like raids like in a native american camp and all we see in that scene is like a medium close-up of uh john wayne's character and then martin john wayne has like his hand on martin's shoulder oh yeah and then the music swells and you just know that the third guy is dead you mm -hmm. just know right and then john wayne's hand drops and i'm like wow this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> there's uh there's also that uh that one moment where <laughs> The, they they do like weird cues like um i can't remember the exact moment but like they play like a want wah kind of sound when like someone like 
screws up and it's it's very like oh, yeah, that was weird. strange to put in the uh, the soundtrack <laughs> yeah that was, was kind of awkward I, I did think that there was like humor oh yeah all through oh, yeah yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> the 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 random Native American wife that Martin gets. Oh, that was hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was dude when they when uh, Marty kicks her. Oh my god, dude, that was down. that was crazy. Oh yeah, I think I like bursted out laughing when that happened. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> the shit you were allowed to do back then, John Ford. That's not very PC. <laughs> oh my god, that's harsh treatment for like anybody. Uh, that's so, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Getting kicked down a getting kicked down a little little hill. She just yeah. rolls. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that that whole could... that whole side plot's so strange. The although yeah. I guess it 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 does you know give more exposition to Scar and it's not like it's completely unimportant, but it's mm-hmm. it's just so strange. And it also like helps the. Uh... Uh, cause like relationship tensions between Martin and Laurie. Is her name? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Laurie. Yeah. yeah. Vera Miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Laurie. Um. Yes. <laughs> uh. Do we uh do? Do we uh, do it? Do we uh, do it? What do you uh, got? Nothing else to talk about. Is this it? No, no, Is no, this the end lot, of the podcast? No, no, no. There's a lot. There's a lot. Um, <laughs> no one's I'm chipping in, thinking. so we gotta we gotta say I'm, something. I'm, I'm just I'm just thinking about where to where to. I I would like to talk more about um, the myth. Yeah. Um. I also want to talk about the history. Yeah, you can go ahead, Tom. Well, I don't have anything in, in specific to say, like, but I feel like there was a lot of historical context that I might have been missing out on because it seemed like there were like factions upon factions that people were part of. So there are like the Native Americans, the Confederates, the Union, the the mm-hmm. Texicans, and then there's also like some like the actual Mexicans, which barely appear. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think this is probably something culturally that the viewers of this film would have been more aware of in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. like nowadays, we're just like, oh, okay, so there are a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. But the politics are heavily alluded to because um, we hear that like uh, Ethan does not want to take the oath because he's taken an oath to a Confederate. Uh, and the, there's the ranger who... Um, I think the rangers who they like couldn't see at the wedding because they had like a, a warrant out and mm-hmm. that was more relation in relation to their crime. But like, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I agree. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I also agree. I think with, with what Nick said earlier in the podcast that you really need to be familiar with um, the classic Hollywood Western to kind of understand mm-hmm. this film. And I think that that's the same uh, thing about like um, post Westerns or like spaghetti Westerns too. Um, because yeah. like a lot of what makes this film work is because it builds on or subverts or makes awkward the tropes of classic Hollywood westerns. Mm. So, like I said before, it puts into question. It doesn't. It doesn't like break um, the narrative, break like the myth, but it puts into question a bunch of uh, the parts of the myth. And yeah. uh, there was another point in which uh, 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. Just just adding back to another thing that I was saying, another thought that came across my mind is there was a point in which um, the woman of, like, I don't know what her name is, but like, so you know the, not the first house that they were in, but like the White House, it was like a cottage, I think it's like where the wedding occurred maybe. Yeah, uh, the Lori, yeah. the one who was going to get married? No, no, like it was like her mother maybe. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. She says, she says, this is going to make a damn fine country one day or something like that. And I don't know if she was actually talking about America or, like, the Republic of Texas. <laughs> yeah. Because Although, I'm, I'm pretty sure Texas was, like, a, a state of its own. Yeah, because they do refer to themselves at some point as Texicans, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. That, and that, that's another thing that I was, like, referring to. That, like, I think it's just another layer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's all very, like, complicated and... Um... Uh, you know, how many, like, how far it goes down. I, I do like the fact that, you know, Ethan is already, like, kind of, I, I don't know if he was back then, but, like, you know, to more modern audiences, the fact that, you know, he's coming off the Confederate States, for most people, that would be a, a big red flag. Um, mm. Well, not in the 50s! <laughs> not yeah. in the 50s! Never gone with the wind, Nick. Yeah. 1939 um yeah, yes i am familiar uh but you know the fact that he starts off you know like he is a confederate but the confederacy is over that's already kind of like this you know gray area to start with for ethan that he is like literally gray because of the confederacy yes to southerners he would have been uh, considered almost a tragic hero yeah yes and i think i think it's definitely playing off that trope yeah um, which is which is why it makes it even more awkward when we see when you see him uh, doing like these horrible actions later on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe maybe that was commentary by Ford. I don't oh know. yeah. Yeah. Probably. I think, I think most, most definitely. I think that the commentary Ford makes in this film is a lot more I think compl- complicated than people give him credit for. Because I mean, yeah tons of negative depictions of native americans i mean there's literally a white dude in like brown face that plays scar right yeah um yeah. and you know there, there's there's uh negative i guess the kind of negative depictions of like mexicans later on and all this kind of thing but you have to check the context when the film came out obviously but also i feel like he's kind of playing with a lot of these tropes um and i'm curious to see like how much he could have really done or how much he really pushed the boundary that was acceptable within, um, you know, the confines of his day. Yeah. Because I think it's really difficult for, for me to kind of go back to 1956. Right. Yeah. Understand, like watch this film from a, like an audience perspective from then and kind of like see how subversive um, all, all these parts really were. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's especially, like, interesting after uh, after watching uh, Who's That Knocking Out My Door, uh, which, have we, did we mention this before, or did we only mention that with Joe right before we started recording? That was just before. Okay, so, um, to put that little comment in context, uh, me and Duran just watched uh, Who's That Knocking Out My Door, uh, Martin Scorsese film from about uh, 67. 67. Uh, but in it, uh, they heavily talk about the searchers, um, and, uh, yeah, 
what's uh, what's kind of interesting is that uh, that that film also kind of plays with like the the manly man stereotype. Um, mm-hmm. And what and the the ironic thing about that film is Harvey Keitel's character kind of like idolizes um, John Ford's character in The Searchers, which is definitely like not John what Wayne. Ford was going for. Yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, John John Wayne's character in The Searchers. That's definitely not what Ford was going for. Because, like, um, I I also don't think that Ford is completely dismissing a John Wayne type character. Definitely. I think that's also kind of reductive because we see at the very end that, um, I mean, he just continues doing what he's doing. I mean, like, I guess he's kind of cleared of his charges. Like, nothing, nothing really happens at that plot point of, like, the murder, right? Yeah. Like, at the end, like, everyone just kind of forgets about that. I mean, he kind of, like, he more or less runs off into the sunset. And I'd like to get to the final shot again later. Oh, absolutely. But, um, you know, I mean, his way of life, while might it might be dying, it's certainly not dead. I would argue that um, in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valence, uh, the John Wayne type uh, Western hero, that then his lifestyle was dead. Because literally John Wayne's character in Liberty Valence from the beginning is dead. Yeah. Um, here, like like I said before, like the the cracks are starting to show. Definitely. Um, do we do we want to perhaps you know talk about that final shot if uh, for already? Sure. It doesn't have to be the end of the conversation either, but like that that last shot is like absolutely amazing. Yeah. So uh, let's just start now, um, dude. That final shot, even though I hadn't seen a whole lot of westerns, that like, that really like helped tie the movie together for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I like what it kind of symbolizes in you know John Wayne is not allowed to enter the household, uh, either not allowed or doesn't want to. Yeah, let's give some context on the shot and like what's actually going on. So, yeah. So basically, what happens is, it's a shot uh, from inside of a house. Um, you see the doorway looking out. And basically what happens is that all the characters in the movie that are like part of the family and still alive enter the house, except for John Wayne, who walks away um, and then the door closes. Yeah. And, so uh, th- th- there's a lot, you know, going on here. <laughs> this, yeah, there is a lot to unpack in all of that, you know, girl captured by Native Americans reuniting with her family over like after seven years i think it is yeah um you know there's uh there's the um kid what's his name uh polly purdy something like that <laughs> uh polly yeah polly there's polly coming home to uh marry Lori for oh, martin yeah okay yeah martin yeah martin yeah. polly um he's coming home to marry Lori, but um you know i Part of me wants to say that John Wayne didn't enter that household because that is this uh, new America that he is he is not a part of. Mm-hmm. And that's that's um, kind of why he's... Yeah. Why? Uh, yeah. John, like John Wayne, like, historically always, like, symbolized the, the Old West. I mean, you see this in Red River. Yeah. You see this in The Searchers. You see this in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valence. And also you see it just... Um, as what he represents like the american cultural um you know consciousness and him being the main character of so many classic hollywood westerns too yeah the fact that he is like you know for 
pretty much the entire baby boomer generation, like, the manly man figure that, like, everyone always looked up to. Um, the fact that he's, he's not allowed in this household with someone who has assimilated with a Native American culture and someone who is part Native American. Um, you know, I think that says a lot about, you know, what kind of character and person Ethan Edwards is. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, his worldview is fundamentally incompatible with um, the New West. Yeah. The, um, the coming of the East into the West. Uh, he's kind of doomed to, like, write off the rest of his days just doing, you know, John Ford, John Wayne uh, sh shenanigans until, yeah. you know, he dies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, it's it makes for a very compelling ending, even if it is, you know, like, relatively simple in what it's saying it's it's very effective in doing so yeah and like also it puts back it, it kind of puts everything into question once again because there's this really awkward moment near the end of the film i think we mentioned briefly before where um we think john wayne is going to kill um what's her name uh debbie, debbie like the whole yeah. time but but suddenly when john wayne catches up with debbie she, uh, he's like welcome home debbie like, we're all we're all good bro <laughs> um and, and then she like uh he, he brings her back to the to the family but that very last shot i mean kind of puts everything that we just said into question because i mean you would think that by doing that john wayne might have kind of changed his character and um well i guess ethan would, would have changed his character and um you know would reconsider his morals and his values yeah. but based off of that final shot we see that you know maybe he really hasn't changed maybe like the things that happened in these last seven years have like affected him um personally but you know fundamentally he's still the same person and fundamentally he's incompatible with the new west yeah tony you haven't spoken in a while do you want to add anything no i i think that i think that's pretty good <laughs> thank you <laughs> we're doing a good job analyzing uh <laughs> I'm fucking stupid. I say these things all the time. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, did you want to? Did you want to talk about anything else? Any, um, you know, aspect? The uh, I know you wanted to talk about kind of the politics before. Do you want to touch upon that yourself? I did. I mean, more than any. I don't know. <laughs> no. This is what I, happens I when you have much. an unstructured podcast, everyone. <laughs> uh, I, I've said. What I feel like I, I uh, came to say. All right. Cool. All right. Um, shall we wrap things up then? Yeah. Um, so. Uh, you should see The Searchers. It's a classic. Yes. American Please do. Uh, maybe if you don't have much Western experience beforehand, maybe get a little in. But uh, definitely you should watch The Searchers. Definitely do that. Yes. All right. Um, we'll move to the last part of the podcast. Uh, we'll start with Tony first. Tony, have you been listening to anything new, watching anything new, reading anything new, playing anything new? Of course. I'll start it out with uh, two things of discussion. Uh, this is a while ago, but I did see this movie. It's a, I think it's a pre-code horror film called Island of Lost Souls. Starring Charles Lawton as Dr. Moreau. And it's an adaptation of an H.G. Wells novel, I think of the same title. And it's, uh, it's talking about these, or it's a, basically um, 
about a, a guy, I believe, who gets like kidnapped or just left on this island, only to find that it's like inhabited by man animal hybrids and this crazy evil mad scientist doctor that makes them and it sounds really campy and it is kind of campy but it was the best execution of a science fiction film of this kind that i've ever seen and i thought it was wonderful i thought both of you would really enjoy watching it yeah it's it's been on my list for a long time so yeah criterion so yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> no, um, it's got the C. Everybody, I've been meaning to to watch like a lot of the pre code the pre code sound films. Um, Nick and I actually watched um, Scarface recently. Yeah, that, that was, was really for, good. Um, yeah, Mafia class, and that oh, yeah. movie was insane, man. Really, for 1932. It's insane. Yeah, I, I didn't. Know. Things. I yeah, didn't know you could get the that. Mm-hmm. And oh, I guess I'll, I'll mention this next. Well, speaking of guitar. Uh, I watched the first episode of Histoire du Cinema, which was very good, uh, very abstract. I'm not sure if I'll continue watching it. That's more due to the fact that the disc that I have for some reason stopped working. But it was a a very weird avant-garde first part of the history of his history series. And it kept like flashing on various like aspects of like cinema that he felt like like uh, was important you'd see stills from famous things in film from the train coming into the station to like the rules of the game and things like that hmm. uh and obviously uh one of the big emphasis emphases was his like famous quote uh, a movie is a girl and a gun and the way that it would display this was so weird it would flash on the screen and it'd be like a girl a girl a girl, girl, and it flash on like a weird like uh, strobe, but it'd be like on the screen in various different places, and they're kind of overlaying each other, and then it'd be like, and a gun, and gun, gun. Seems very Godard. Oh yeah, it seems super Godard. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then like it'd just be like also over top, uh, a like piece of footage of himself smoking a cigar and <laughs> writing on a typewriter that is seemingly almost irrelevant to the movie. <laughs> and it's all like, it's all like edited very interestingly and experimentally. But the problem is, is that like it's all analog and what was very impressive back in the day with analog avant-garde editing is not as impressive. Today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. True. And um, I'm like, we could probably make something like this on, on where, that movie. And where did cool. you, uh, where did you watch this? You, you said like on a disc? Yeah. Okay. I, I've been like meaning to find this for some Um time. also, <laughs> uh if I may ask, I'm not too familiar with this. What is it? Okay, so it's like I think it's a either six or eight part series that Godard did in like the nineties, I believe, either eighty nine and all yeah, let's say that's that's a good date. Um after that point. He released um a bunch of different parts almost like every year. For like a decade. Interesting. And they're just like all avant-garde and like going over like, I guess, his personal history of cinema, which has, just watching the first episode, actually made me much more appreciative of classic Hollywood in like a very strange way. Because he doesn't really narrate anything 
in like in like a a traditional way he's all just like basically like saying like various vague french aphorisms <laughs> but highlighting just cool cool shots and scenes in a very chaotic way and i realized that the cinema that we love and enjoy or the cinema that we got into initially is pretty much all like 50s and on but for Godard, cinema as like classical cinema ends in like the 60s and so it's almost like personally i've been ignoring the whole like the whole canon that created people like Godard and Truffaut and, and Scorsese and I think the searchers was a way for me to get back. Like I'm starting to get back into that. Um, and I think that's, that's just really interesting that like most people these days pay no mind to older pieces of cinema that somebody like Adar would say is the greatest film of all time. And we would just definitely. be like, Oh, that's an old film. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, uh, I can definitely kind of relate to that, you know, like I know it's a cliche to be like, you know, Oh, you've heard of this movie. And like, you know, it's some really old movie when uh, when talking to like the average person, because most people don't really watch anything that isn't contemporary or considered by their parents as like classics. Yeah. I I definitely fell into that trap. I was you know only watching stuff from like the '80s, which is you know when my parents were growing up. So like they would be like, "Hey, this is a good movie," and be like, "All right," um, but. A lot of, you know, modern, uh, you know, cinephiles, I think, fall into this trap of, you know, never watching, uh, you know, things after a certain point. Yeah, I, uh, Tony, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I kind of, I notoriously shit on classic Hollywood films and uh, a lot of, like, the, the early Hollywood films. I, I personally, I guess, don't find them very interesting, but... Um, now that I've actually watched a lot of movies by, I guess, directors from like the fifties and sixties and onwards. Um, and I, I guess I kind of more understand the influence that they've had from these films, especially like French new wave, especially Godard, like, um, Godard is so inspired by, um, like Ford, Nicholas Ray, you know, um, oh, yeah. that, um, it's really it maybe rethink my perspective on these earlier films. And so like, I, I really think that I should, I, I need to like do these films justice, kind of go back, understand, you know, how cinema was developed as an art form. Oh yeah. And I, I think it would also maybe make the films that we watch currently even more interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they're all, they're all like responses to these older films. Um, like, like, uh, you, you really can't understand Godard, I think. Um, like, like his early 60s work by only watching his only 60s work you can only understand him when like you you watch the movies that he's responding to or that he's like taking inspiration by mm -hmm, definitely yeah and then on the side of uh, what i've been reading i recently finished borges um, short story book fictiones or just fictions in english and that's another thing that i think both of you would actually really like it's this um short story collection that takes like classic genres like um adventure mystery spies and it like mixes them in with like absolutely mystical or scientific concepts and it, it leads to a very very cool result 
you, you might you might know him for like Library of Babel or um, LLF. I know that he was actually influential to the writing of the story of Bioshock Infinite. Hmm. And it's this is another interesting thing is that uh, he predicts various scientific concepts that I don't think had been like invented yet, such as like Schrodinger's cat. I think is like related to like quantum or Schrodinger's cat, and then like also like quantum mechanics in ways that I'm like not actually sure of. That's just what I read online, but uh, it makes sense to me. Like there's this one short story I read. It's a spy short story. And the spy is like running in from another spy who's, I guess, going to kill him. And he goes to his like, I don't know, some sort of intelligence meetup. And he talks to this professor who introduces him to like this ancient Chinese novel that he's translating. And at, at, it's like at every single um, t- t- uh, turn in the story of the Chinese novel, it breaks into two new stories. And then every time, every like two new paths, so two separate like two separate universes within the story are happening at the same time, uh, giving given like the two opportunities that are presented, and then it breaks again and again and again, and it's just an absolute labyrinth. And labyrinths are a, a theme, a motif that Voorhees is very uh, obsessed with. There's another story that uh, that he presents, which was like. Well, I, I should probably not go into all these stories, but <laughs> it's it's this it's, it's a very interesting story about like the nature of labyrinths and questioning whether a labyrinth without walls can exist. And it's great; you guys should really check mm. them out. That's cool. I've been I've been recommended Borges by one of my friends for like two years, <laughs> and at this point, it's like an embarrassing that I haven't read anything by him. So right. he's definitely somebody that I've been meaning to get into. But thanks for the rec. Yeah, glad you heard. He's famous, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Duran. Well, what mm-hmm. have you been watching, reading, listening to? Blah 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 blah. Um. So recently, I got into uh, Leonard Cohen. So I listened to his first album, um, "Songs of Leonard Cohen," and I like instantly fell in love. Uh, I, I kind of got familiar with him um, after watching uh, "McCabe and Mrs. Miller" by Altman, which is also the greatest western of all time objectively um so watch it uh, so yeah leonard cohen i've been listening to a bit i've been listening to a bit of kendrick lamar good kid mad city got into that really good album right. oh it's a great album yeah i gotta i really like i gotta get more into kendrick and um leonard cohen uh, what was your favorite song off of songs of love and hate oh the stranger song dude okay i haven't listened to it in a really long time it's been years mm. but i recall really liking famous blue raincoat yeah, yeah. I mean, all of it is just amazing. Like, mm. I, I really don't think there's like a like a like a bad or even mediocre song on that album. It's, just, it's Leonard um, Cohen, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I honestly like I really didn't know who he was until after I had watched McCabe and Mrs. Miller. So, um, in terms of what I've been watching, Nick and I watch a bunch of stuff for for classes. So I guess I'll skip those. I guess Nick can touch upon those. But yeah, the things I watch for myself, um. Ashes Purest White, the Jazanki film, came out last uh, last year or two years ago. It was decent. Um, I finished the um, the trilogy of Life by Pasolini. So, oh, can you um, talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I loved it. It's it's insane, man. It's so much fun. He he. he um, so, so like the concept of the trilogy of Life. Um, uh, what? 
if I mm -hmm. may ask, what movies are included in the Trilogy of Life? Uh, I'll get into that in a sec. So the concept okay. of the Trilogy of Life is that um, Pasolini takes like classical classic literature. So like um, Decameron, the Canterbury Tales, and um, 100 Arabian Nights, which are the, the three films. 1,001 Arabian Nights. Oh, my bad, bro. Sorry. <laughs> um, and he interprets them in a kind of like um, contemporary way with a lot of... Um, he, he like makes the, um, the sexual illusions in them very explicit, for example. Um, and, and kind of he makes these, these works... Uh, very like fun and accessible to be like kind of a celebration of life. Um, and they're extremely like um, anachronistic because so they all take place in um, their respective time periods. So like uh, medieval times for um, Canterbury tales and well, I guess Canterbury is like more Renaissance, right? But um, medieval times for the uh, Cameron and then um, like, I think it's 18th or 17th century for Arabian nights. Um, but there's elements of it that are very, very like reminiscent of um, of today. Like, there's literally, I think there's a shot in Canterbury Tales where like it's it's like it, it looks like a, like a shot of like a city. Like you can see like ACs outside, and it, it's really really strange. But um, I think the reason why I like them so much is because they kind of well one they demystify um, classical lit, but they also it, it's a really interesting way of making these stories still um, relevant today um, by uh, focusing on like the sexual aspects of them, which I think like maybe like a lot of um, literary critics, um, at least maybe from the time that Pasolini is making these films might have like ignored from these stories. I, I read some actually, so Arabian Nights is really influential to Borges. And so after I finished Riccione's, I was like, oh, let me check this out. And Arabian Nights is like basically literally unfinishable. So I just read as much as I cared to and uh, and then stopped. But uh, I know that the various translations have different different like levels of eroticism within. I think the first translation, I think it was called like Galand. Galand it's like a French guy. And he like w was extremely over in like the various sexual aspects and that really emphasized, I guess, the exoticism and, like, Orientalism. Mm. But what I found the most interesting thing in Arabian Nights to be is that, I don't know if they do this in Pasolini, but, like, the story... So there's, like, one main overarching story, and yeah. then within that story, there are, like, three stories... Or, no, there's, like, there's going to be another story, and then there are three stories within that story. And it's, like... Kind of like Ince uh, an Inception in a way. <laughs> no, it's actually, no, uh, that's exactly what Pasolini does. I mean, oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah, the I'll only check that word out. we have yeah. to describe things inside of things is Inception. What have we done uh, as a yeah, culture? Dude. Christopher Nolan invented the Arabian Nights. No, um, so he doesn't do like the story within a story within a story, but certainly there is like an overarching story, and then we really get cut up in these stories within this overarching story. Um, interesting but they don't go to like a third level because that'd be super yeah crazy. it was crazy so like there's obviously like the story that's being told about like Scheherazade I don't mm -hmm. know if they have that okay and then yeah I think I think and then, character, yeah. yeah and then she tells like a story about like this like fisherman or something mm -hmm. and then the fisherman's like Mr. Genie please don't kill me let me tell you a story so that uh so that maybe you're so entertained that you won't want to kill me 
That's fine. And so, so, so then uh, he, he like tells him a story, and then the genie's like, "Okay, I won't kill you." Uh, but but then oh wait, hold on, that's not the right story. So there's another story where this guy's like, <laughs> like "Genie, genie, don't kill me," and then and then this and then the guy goes, "Okay, I won't kill you now, but I'll kill you in a year." And so then the guy comes back like a year later and then three old dudes walk by and then they're like, like, Oh, why do you look so sad? And he's like, I'm going to meet this genie right here and he's going to kill me. And they're like, Oh, that's so sad. Let us sit with you. And so they sit with him and then the genie comes back, of course. And, and then all three of the guys are like, genie, let me tell you a story so that we get his punishment and not you or not not him. And so they, they all three tell him the story tell them their stories and then he's like the genie is like eh, okay this is pretty entertaining nobody does nice <laughs> and so the stories are like kind of like not consequential and they're kind of just like fun and myst- like mysterious and mm-hmm. whimsical but that that like that like um structure that's just what like fascinated me i love yeah um i really think well i, I haven't read it but i think pasolini captures this, this structure that you described um although maybe not as convoluted since he only had two hours to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely like the fun aspects of it, I think are captured very, very well. Um, I, I definitely recommend checking it out. In fact, I'd, check out, I'd recommend checking out the whole trilogy. Um, I really think that they, um, although, although it's not really necessary to watch all the films, I mean, I think they're all a good time and they're all like interesting commentaries on their material. Um, I also watched um, Altman's Images which is like a like a weird kind of horror film he directed about I think it's a um, mentally ill woman who um, you don't really know is mentally at the beginning but it, you kind of understand it through um, how the film is edited and how like uh, everything is like through her subjective perspective um, and she starts like seeing things and like you start questioning like what she's doing um, and if she's like aware of what she's doing since you 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 see everything kind of through her eyes. So like a person that's on screen might not actually be there in like the reality of the film. So on like a technical level, I thought it was like really, really amazing. Um, big fan of Oldman, by the way. Get into him if y'all haven't. Um, trying to. <laughs> and uh, a couple things that Nick and I watched. So um, we Kion watched Quatsi. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I've seen that. Yeah. Great soundtrack. There's oh, another yeah. thing I want to mention that I watched after you. You go through this. I yeah. couldn't. I couldn't even rate Koyana Squatsi. I was just like, "This is just a museum installation. I don't feel good rating this." Yeah, that's yeah. fair. I, I thought that it was, like Koyana Squatsi is kind of funny because, when, like, the hype that I heard from it was like, "This is just like a, a crazy critique of the modern world and capitalism," and like, the theme Koyana Squatsi is like showing the native life. And then I watched it. The native life was like superior to Western life. And then I watched it. And I'm like, nothing. This is just like kind of cool imagery. Yeah, Nothing's no, because like crazy I, here. I mean, I, I I definitely feel like it's much more complicated than people make it out to be. You know, because um, a lot of like the images of like the machines are I really don't think are meant to be like a negative depiction of them. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't, I didn't ask like, them to that one. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I certainly think like that that theme is in there that um, maybe like we're moving too far into machine and like away from nature. I don't doubt that, but I I think it's a much more complicated than people make it out to be. Um, but I just I do think it's really interesting how um, the director was able to kind of like create this narrative just through like time lapses and like wide shots, any characters or anything like that, like a non-narrative film. 
Yeah, well, the music definitely helps too. It definitely, you know, has an emotional Philip lead. Glass is fill up a my man. He's great. He's a ultra Chad dude. Freaking Thin Blue Lion soundtrack, Amishima Eleven Four Chapters soundtrack. I haven't listened to any of his like original works because what's yeah. funny. <laughs> <laughs> the only the only uh, other original soundtrack I've heard him do is uh, Candyman, which is fantastic. Even he though did the Candyman, I, yeah, I guess he was like he was suckered into it because he was like well, he thought it was going to be more like the short story than it actually was. But like uh, oh. he's he's glad that it gets him a, a paycheck nowadays. But he was originally not happy with uh, what happened. Oh, he did the soundtrack for the new Fantastic Four movie. Bruh, did he <laughs> did he do it or did he just do like one song? I don't know. I'm looking at his letterbox right now. <laughs> so, Duran, this yeah. is the thing that I watched. Do you know who Albert Serra is? I don't. Okay, I have a film for you. I saw oh. it recently. It is so good and pretty obscure. It came out in, I think, 2016. Let me just check this. So it's called The Death of Louis XIV. It came out in 2016. It's two hours and it was fantastic. Look up the stills. So it has it has the, uh, the little boy from 400 Blows. Oh, starring, yeah, Jean-Pierre Lyot is in this. Yeah, <laughs> as, as uh, Louis XIV, who was dying. And it's like absolutely minimalist, slow cinema of this man get like, uh, who's like royal, obviously like the Sun King, like the highest royalty France has ever seen. He has like a bunch of just, just different like um, servants that are constantly just looking up to him, and he's dying. His his leg has like gangrene or something, and so it's turning black, and he's in awful pain. And there are just like all sorts of like either humorous or like sad ways in which he's coping with this. And it, every single shot was like a beautiful painting. It was just so incredible. It blew my socks off. That's cool. cool. Um, well, what what other films do you compare it to? Like Barry Lyndon, maybe. It was like Barry Lyndon, not in tone, but in composition. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, interesting. All right, yeah, I'll have to check it out. We're uh, we're we're on like an hour now, so <laughs> let's stop getting so <laughs> tangential with this. No, we're getting tangential. On How dare you? you. Stop us! You How dare stop you? Us. I will stop recording right now. I'll just record. Damn. All right. Anyway. Um, Nick, what have you been watching, reading, listening to, eating, um, sleeping? Dude, I think you forgot to mention the fact that uh, cinema was then, in fact, saved after we saw Tenant by us watching. I'm thinking of ending things, which is oh, yeah, the true. best movie of 2020, like by far. Oh, oh yeah, it's so um, it's so good. <laughs> Tony, I think Tony, I think you'd really like it. My, What's it called? I'm, I'm thinking, thinking of things. It's the new uh, Charlie Kaufman joint. Um, oh, okay. I, I don't I really like... I don't, I'm not a huge fan of any of the Charlie Kaufman I've seen. If you're not a fan of Charlie Kaufman, this is the movie that you'll like by him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've also, like... I've also, like, enjoyed some of his films. So, like, Adaptation I really liked. I liked um, Eternal Sunshine, Being John Malkovich. I didn't... I wasn't a big fan of Synecdoche, New York. That was kind of lame. Um, but this is, by far, I think, his most out there and his most interesting like emotionally i think the problem i had with kaufman's movies is that um i couldn't really connect to any of them on an emotional level this is the first one that really got me yeah this one's just really good mm-hmm. um we watched hugo for class uh Yikes. i didn't really like hugo i'm gonna be honest with 
with uh, everybody here. Sorry, Hugo's it's, not great. It's kind of bad. Uh, we watched uh, both versions of Scarface together. Um, who's that knocking at my door? Koyana Squatsy, The Searchers. Um, we also watched uh, Kill Hulk. Yes. Um, I'll I'll let I'll let everybody uh, look up what Kill Hole is because I like. Oh boy. We were so blasted watching Kill Hole. We cannot remember anything from the film. Just just know that it's a Chadwick Boseman movie, which I think on IMDb has less than five hundred logs. I on Letterbox it has. 97 people. We're almost yeah. at 100 views for the kill hole. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, it's like some weird B movie that Chadwick Boseman was in before like his uh, career like took off. Yeah, but we we found it on like movie or something, so we were like, yeah. oh fuck it, whatever. <laughs> yeah, we just we just um, gave it a shot because it looked it looks absolutely terrible, and it was. Chadwick Boseman tries his spent best. That time watching that. <laughs> Chadwick Boseman tries his best, and I'm glad that he went on to do bigger and better things because he definitely deserves it. Um, but uh, in terms of what I've been listening to, I've added a lot of Tom Waits and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds to my library, oh, but crazy. I've only really gotten around to listening to Bone Machine and Let Love In. Both of those albums are fucking fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I definitely, definitely recommend those. I'll definitely be getting around to, um, the other ones that I've added. Tender Prey, Henry's Dreams, Henry's Dream, and then Closing Time, Small Changes, and, uh, Swordfish Trombones, uh, are the ones that I have added but have not listened to. Um, I also have been reading, uh, I did, I reread, uh, Old Man Logan, the comic, uh, from Marvel, which is... It's really cool because it's like, re in rereading it, I've realized that they've like, it's a total post-apocalypse story, which they did not go for in the movie, but um, it's it's just very interesting that like they they'd even allow this like timeline to exist where like stuff's just gone so completely awry. Basically, the the idea is that. Uh, the heroes have lost, and the entirety of the United States have been split up between, like, Doctor Doom, Magneto, and Red Skull. So it's like, everything is, like, completely out of control. But, yeah. Uh, as a result, I rewatched uh, Anti-Cinema, uh, Avengers Infinity War, and Endgame. Uh, which I still think are both fantastic. They, uh... To me, they just they just fill me with this sort of like you know joy. It's like comic books really coming to life. Um, I like Endgame. I I think that they do that very well. Um, but yeah, uh, that's uh, that's what I've been doing. I think Endgame really uh, its first hour really does the whole post apocalypse with superheroes very well. But I don't know. That's just me. Uh, yeah. Can I get uh, one last thing in? Sure. Which is what Go I've been ahead. listening to recently, which has been Love Deluxe by Sade. And nice. it is an absolutely phenomenal, warm, mysterious album that combines, like, soft, soft, like, um, I don't know, it's just, like, beats, like, almost like a bongo or something, with almost like a slight trip hop uh 
touch to it. So I almost feel like it's a it's massive attack, but like very romantic and warm. If you guys familiar, if you guys are familiar with like massive attacks mezzanine, hmm. which is now I'm drawn with like. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I have to check it out. Um, I need to stop listening to just Kanye West. Yeah. Oh yeah. This man has been driving <laughs> me insane. Are you a Kanye fan now, Nick? Uh, <laughs> I'm not. My exposure. <laughs> the majority but of this man, this man, is Kanye fan. This man's blasting Kanye. I mean, I'm not. You know, I I think I have that love hate relationship that everybody has. I haven't dived deep into Kanye, but like you know, I enjoy some of his music. But like, like you, you him as a person, love- I don't think I can get around. Nick, you can only have a love hate relationship with Kanye if you're a Kanye fan. Oh Otherwise, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm a Kanye fan then. I can't. I'm ready can, to jump in. Under, you cannot understand hating Kanye West with all of your 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 soul until you're like a super fan. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Like he's so disappointed every time he says he's gonna drop an album, and okay. like you believe him, you believe him. He, he says he's dropping an album at that date, and you're like, oh, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be Surely that date happen. this time. Yeah, must and be it true. Doesn't. Tony, it's been betrayed. two months. Where is Donda? I'm so sad. Oh my well, god. Anyway. Did you, uh, did you see his recent tweet where um, he like posted the song name of like one of one of the songs on Donda because he was trying to like upload the MP3 but didn't know how. Uh, oh. <laughs> no, I didn't see that. That's funny. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh. Before we get too ten too tangential, like Nick says, maybe we should wrap things up. Yeah. Uh. I think that's that's really it for me. So if y'all are done, uh, this has uh been the cinephile uh, new wave everybody this has been the cinephile new wave everybody uh outro music <laughs> outro music <laughs> i'll see you later everybody skip to my loo my darling